This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Our speaker for today is Dr. Katie Marshall. Katie is an assistant professor in biology in the Department of Zoology at UBC. She's going to be talking about what biology says, the human's guide to the galaxy of sex determination. Sounds like fun. Please welcome Katie to our meeting today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. Um, I have just moved back to uh, Vancouver. Um, I spent the last two years as a professor of uh, physiology at the University of Oklahoma. And this talk is, is a bit of a sort of a version of a talk that I give my uh, introductory physiology students, uh, most of whom are, are pre-medical students. So you're, you're going to get kind of a broad view of sex determination as well as a little bit about how this works in humans and, and where things, we see a lot of variation in, in uh, sex and gender. Um, and the name of this talk, I just wanted to point out, is obviously an homage to Douglas Adams and the Gal- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's also a bit of an homage to one of my very favorite uh, journal article titles of all time, uh, the Decapod Researcher's Guide to the Galaxy of Sex Determination. So a decapod, in case you don't know, is just a 10-legged uh, arthropod, so something like a lobster or a crab. And we won't get into that today, but there are like entire big scientific papers you can read about the galaxy of sex determination. And if you're going to publish in the scientific literature, have a catchy title. And so this is just my sort of way of, of paying tribute to that. I want to start with some caveats. I am not a developmental biologist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a cultural anthropologist, I'm not an ethicist, these are not my fields. Um, There are lots of people at UBC and SFU who do study some of these things. Um, So Sally Otto in my own department works on the genetics of sex determination and why sex has evolved at all. Um, I really recommend checking out her work. And Dr. Lisa Lutzenheiser is, uh, works in pedagogy and, and how um, gender variant uh, youth in, in particular um, should be taught and what their sort of experiences are. So there are lots of people who are experts in these things. If you ask me a question sort of related to these things, I might have an opinion from my own reading, but that is not my expertise. Now, I, what my expertise is, and what you're probably wondering why am I talking to you today, is I'm what's called a comparative physiologist. So physiology is a study of how our bodies function. And I study this by looking across the tree of life. So everywhere from bacteria through to mammals. Um, how can we understand how biology works by comparing lots and lots of different organisms? And so um, more specifically, I'm interested in questions of how we get from genes, so kind of the code of life, to a fully functioning organism. I think it's fascinating. It's one of the big questions. Now that we have the Human Genome Project, we have the sequence of DNA, but how does that become like a fully functioning organism? This is an important, uh, real, like a really important concept for understanding how we go from um, any sort of, of chromosomes and sort of this idea of how we think sex determination happens to an actual organism. One of the areas I really look at is um, what happens with organisms that survive very low temperatures. 
And that's because they're in a state of developmental arrest, and so it's just a really nice way of, of getting at um, some of these questions. Caveat number two. Uh, None of what I say today really has any impact on how we treat human beings. So there is nothing I can sort of present to you about what happens in the, the sort of animal kingdom that is going to say anything about treating people with respect. I mean, that's just a basic humanist principle. And I'd really beware, you know, be careful of the naturalistic fallacy. Just because we see or don't see something happening in the natural world doesn't mean that tells us how we should morally behave. So. Um, you know, infanticide is common in the animal kingdom. None of us would argue that that's a moral good, right? Um, and so the purpose of this talk is really to address the argument that some people make that biology says there are only two genders. And really, this is just kind of my extended response about what biology actually does say. So our bias, right? And I think we all sort of sitting in this room know this is that male means that you have an X and a Y chromosome, and female means you have two X chromosomes. And when you have these genes, you have certain biology, and that makes you male or female, and you come together and you produce offspring. And that's sort of, I think, where, where a lot of us have you know, sort of heard about this. But biologically, what do we mean by male or female? How does that, that actually work? And I should also mention that uh, this idea of there being like two sexes and it's X and Y chromosomes is even uh, currently even being debated here in Vancouver, right? Um, so this was, I saw this on the bus like literally three days ago and had to take a picture. So this uh, clinic, it says all ages, all genders, all orientations. And someone decided to take a Sharpie to it and write two genders. <laughs> Which, I mean, to go to that kind of, like, why you would vandalize an advertisement like that, I don't really understand. Um, but, you see, there was battling graffiti, and someone wrote it, you know, marked out the two, and wrote it all. I mean, this is one of the sort of big, um, the, the big question that's really happening a lot in society today. And, and I am not going to stand here and say I have the answers to all of this, because I don't. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, you know, a, uh, someone who studies culture. I'm just going to address the argument that biology says there are two genders. That's it. Um, and when we talk about what we mean by male or female, um, it really depends who you ask. And I want to just kind of get a few definitions of the, out of the way first. Uh, we usually would describe a difference between sex and gender. So sex is sort of the biological um, physiology and anatomy. This is, this is where I come in and sort of my interest and expertise. I don't know if you know, but the term gender was actually coined um, in, in reference to sort of um, humans was coined in the mid-50s. It's a relatively new term. Um, and it really just relates to sort of cultural and psychological sort of expectations of um, masculinity and femininity. There's really no sort of biological um, terminology. The official policy statement of my professional organization, so the American Physiological Society and the Canadian Society of Zoologists, is that we work on sex. We do not, gender is not our thing. That is like a cultural, psychological sort of set of things. And so, yeah, gender before the 50s actually just related to um, languages. So like if you, you know, if you have a Latin language, you have like the masculine, feminine sort of nouns. Um, so it's only in the 50s that it was coined to sort of describe these, these masculine and feminine roles. And to give you another sort of sense of that, um, it's really common for, let's say, uh, women to have hysterectomies. You, you know, they have their uterus and their ovaries removed. Um, that's a biological change that's happened to them. We don't think that they are less 
female because that happens. We don't, you know, not identify them as a woman even though their sort of anatomical sex has changed. So gender is this kind of wholly separate, sort of culturally mediated thing. So um, when we talk about sex, that's most of what we're going to talk about today. I will talk a little bit about gender identity, and that's sort of someone's own innate feeling of what their, their gender is. Um, and I really won't talk about expression or attraction other than to sort of define them up front. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, when we talk about um, gender, we can also sort of use terms, and you probably have heard these, transgender and cisgender. Uh, these come from Latin. They're not made up words. Um, these, I actually first encountered cis and trans um, in relation to organic chemistry. So uh, cis means on the same side as. So in this molecule, you can see the methyl groups are both on the same side of the molecule. Trans means opposite side. So in that case, we have the methyl group on either side of that molecule. So cisgender is just someone whose um, gender identity matches what sort of society thought they would be, so what they were assigned at birth based on biological sex. And transgender means that their gender identity does not match that. So if I use these terms later on, this is what I'm talking about, and this is broadly what, what those terms mean. Gender expression, or the way that we sort of think about someone's gender, is completely socially determined. So if I were, for instance, to describe someone with long hair and a skirt, you would probably imagine a particular gender often. But the way society interprets gender has really changed over time, right? Long hair and a skirt is a very masculine thing in particular societies and particular points of time. Um, and there's really no sort of biological basis to this. As far as we can tell, um, if you look anthropologically across many, many cultures, male and female just varies a lot. Uh, when we talk about orientation, so which genders particular people are attracted to, um, I, we, there's a lot about the biological basis we don't know, um, but um, it's been observed in over 1,500 species, um, same-sex attraction. So we really, you know, there's no evidence that it's unnatural or something we don't see in biology. Um, and it's not just mating behavior, but even um, social pair bonding. Oops, sorry about that social pair bonding. And so what we have here are pairs of male flamingos who are socially pair bonded. If there is a chick that is orphaned, they'll actually raise it together. And so um, there's a really nice um, review of this, if this is something you're interested in, uh, called Same-Sex Sexual Behavior and Evolution um, that was published a few years ago. So we're really not going to spend a lot of time on either one of those topics. But I just wanted to kind of briefly say, here's where we are with biology. So from a biological perspective, if we look across the tree of life, how do we define male or female given the sort of wide range of anatomy and physiology that we see? Really the sort of only universal thing is that we would call female large gamete uh, producers. So females produce these large gametes, eggs, and males produce sperm from like a completely biological sex sort of perspective. And uh, this is not surprising. We have lots of species um, that, for instance, don't have penises at all, where the external anatomy, um, geni genital anatomy, is the same between the biological sexes. We have species uh, that produce both eggs and sperm. So we kind of, when we're talking about male or female, we're talking this very, very, very specific sense. Beyond that, it depends what level of biological organization you're interested in. So we're going to sort of start here with genes and chromosomes as we talk about this. 
We're going to move on to gonads. Those are the parts of your reproductive anatomy that produce uh, sex hormones and produce eggs and sperm. We'll talk a little bit about phenotypic and morphological sex and how that happens. And then finally, we're just going to touch briefly on, on brains and behavior and a little bit about what we know about that. And this is probably the area that we know the least about. And so, you know, I'm going to present it with quite a lot of, there's a lot we don't know here. So let's start with chromosomal sex, right? It's just XX and XY, right? Two X chromosomes, one X, one XY. Well, no. So in humans, this is the system we use. Um, broadly, it's across mammals. But if we were to look at other organisms, like birds, we actually have the exact opposite system. So in birds, uh, females uh, have a, what's called a ZW um, set of chromosomes, so two different chromosomes, right? Where the males are ZZ, so two of the same chromosomes. So it's a lot similar to the system we use, it's just completely inverted. So there's nothing about having a Y chromosome that means necessarily male. Um, in birds, it's like literally that exact system backwards. In lots of organisms, we have a, a, what's called haplodiploidy. So um, we have, all of us here, we are diploid. We have two sets of chromosomes, so 23 um, pairs of chromosomes. In haplodiploid species, the female is diploid. So she's got two sets of chromosomes. The males only have one set. They've got half the genes. Um, and in their particular society, they uh, or in the way that they structure their societies, the males are kind of there for reproduction, and that's sort of it. And they literally, in honeybees, they get kicked out of the colony in the fall because they're not worth keeping alive in the winter. And again, this is one of those spots where I'm like, happens in nature, probably not a great way to organize their society, right? <laughs> so, uh, and this is how it works in ants and bees, so the uh, the set of insects that it is called Hymenoptera. Uh, in other cases, we'll have an X, um, XX system, but what happens is a female has two X chromosomes and the male only has one X chromosome, so there's no Y chromosome at all. Uh, in humans, we have lots and lots of individuals who also don't necessarily fit that X and X, uh, XXXY. So in some cases, individuals have two X chromosomes and a uh, Y chromosome, so that's a trisomy, so they've got a set of three chromosomes. Another um, group of people will have just one X chromosome and no Y. Uh, humans can't survive with only a Y chromosome. Um, there's just not enough genes on it. Most of the sort of genes we need to stay alive are found on the X chromosome. And the total rate of sort of chromosomal variation in humans is about one in a hundred. And I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's actually about the same sort of amount as uh, the number of red-haired people in the world. So if you know someone red-haired, you also probably know someone who fits into one of these categories. They may not have told you, or they also may not um, themselves know. Uh, the, a really nice paper to kind of describe some of this um, is in, uh, was published in Nature a few years ago called Sex Redefined. And they described a case of a 74-year-old man who had abdominal surgery due to pain. They discovered a uterus, which was a surprise not just to the doctors, but also to himself because he had fathered several children. Um, in lots of cases, these we're only sort of learning the extent of how much variation there is in human biology now that we have you know, regular surgery and um, the ability to sequence genes and, and really understand that. So this is probably a big underestimate, that this is surprisingly common. Some organisms don't use genes at all to determine sex. So um, we would call this environmental sex determination. So for us, um, and I'm gonna just 
show a few plots here. We've got temperature on the x-axis, proportion males in the population on the y. For us as mammals and, and a few other organisms, um, as, as, you know, it doesn't matter what temperature we are at, our environment is at, we're still going to get about a 50-50 male-female ratio, give or take. In turtles, the hotter it is, the more females develop. So you could take the same, exact same egg incubated in the heat versus the cold, and you will get female versus male. So it's not a genetic change, right? The gene sequence itself does not vary. It's just what its environment is like. In uh, crocodiles and snapping turtles, intermediate temperatures give you males, and extreme temperatures on either side give you females. And then finally, in lizards and alligators, the hotter the nest, the more males you get. So it's, and again, it's really no consistency here. There's, you could have just about any arrangement. And this is also something that a lot of physiologists are concerned about in terms of climate change. So as we have warmer and warmer temperatures, it may be that the sex ratios of those, those organisms are, you know, if you have an all-male population, you're really not gonna get a really viable population for very long. Uh, in other cases, we have um, hermaphrodism as a, as a common sort of way of, of passing on genes. And I just want to point out, um, hermaphrodite is a biological term we use to refer to animals that have both sort of the ability to produce eggs and sperm. So it's not a term we use for humans, um, and we'll talk a little bit um, about sort of why that is later on, but basically this is really just sort of a very strict sort of biological um, description of organisms that do this as sort of their, their usual way of reproduction. And we can have what are called simultaneous hermaphrodites, so they, one individual at any given time can produce both sperm and eggs, or we can have sequential hermaphrodites, so they'll change biological sex as they um, mature or based on social circumstances. And so here, uh, this is a tree of life of fish, and I'm sorry, you really can't see it, but everything in fluorescent yellow is a group of fish that um, have hermaphrodism as sort of their normal mode of reproduction. And so you can see that it has evolved repeatedly over and over again within uh, the fish. And this is just, again, a really stable way of having a reproductive population. Think about it, double the individuals um, producing offspring, double the population growth. So one of my favorite stories is about the clownfish, right? This is Finding Nemo. And in the clownfish, they are what's called a protandrous hermaphrodite. So they're male first. All individuals first develop as a male. They live in these little social groups associated with anemones for protection. Um, and what each one of these groups will have sort of one or two females that hang around and is sort of the, the reproduction, reproductive um, individual in that group. Now, if that female is removed, and she's sort of the dominant one in that group as well, if she's removed or she dies, uh, she's eaten, one of the largest males will develop into a female um, and like biologically produce, start producing uh, sperm, he'll um, have uh, like a complete change in his morphology. Um, so this idea of genes sort of determining what sex are gonna end up being, really at least in fish is just not, not the situation. You can have socially determined um, sex change. So I think that's super fascinating. We'll talk a bit about how that could happen um, later on. It also would make Finding Nemo a very different movie if they had those, like, you know, some biological realism there. We also have the, can have the opposite situation. So in blue-headed wrasses, this is a reef fish. 
you can see the females are these sort of a smaller yellow individuals. The males um, are bigger. They have the blue head and they have this sort of nice coloration. And they live in these sort of groups of one dominant male and lots and lots of females. And uh, if that male again dies, um, and they all start off female, I should mention. If that male dies in that group, one of the females, the probably the biggest, most dominant one, it seems like, uh, will start developing again into that male. So she'll look exactly, and that male would have been female at one point in his life. So, um, and again, the ability to produce sperm, um, behavioral differences, you can see um, real differences in how they look, right? And all of that, again, is socially determined. Once um, the group is missing its male, one of those individuals will determine it to, will become female. Um, but there are some individuals in that population who start off male from the beginning, um, and they don't actually ever sort of go through this um, you know, sort of female to male transition, but they're not these big terminal phase males. And so there's really kind of two types of males in those populations, these sort of big, dominant, socially dominant terminal phase males that used to be female, and then the individuals that were male from the beginning but are much smaller and sort of sneak in to, um, to uh, sneak their sperm into, into the egg. So it's really a, an interesting sort of group dynamic. Uh, in some cases, biological sex is determined by armed conflict. So uh, one of my very favorite terms is penis jousting, um, and this is how this species determines who has the male um, and who has the female sort of reproductive functions. So this is pseudobiceros benfori, and pseudobiceros, um, if you know your Latin, means fake two-horn. You can see these right here. Those are its penises. Um, and so two individuals, when it's time to reproduce, uh, will actually undergo this like jousting, sort of this fighting. Um, and you can get videos on this on YouTube if you're, if you're interested. It's really cool. They all kind of swim around. And, and basically the winner um, sort of traps down um, the loser and stabs it. It's traumatic insemination. Um, and uh, injects sperm. And then the, the one who lost that fight will end up um, having its eggs fertilized and will uh, have the developing embryos grow inside it. So both have the ability to um, produce eggs and sperm. It's really just sort of who wins, right? Who, uh, who determines this? In some cases, you don't even have males at all. Um, I know we talked a little bit about haplodiploid species, but several species of lizards are completely parthenogenic. So they reproduce um, not by having sperm meet egg. The egg itself can just totally de uh, develop on its own. Um, but this gets really interesting in, this is the uh, New Mexico whiptail lizard, and I was lucky enough as I was driving up here to go through its habitat, and I saw a sign, I was like, it's the whiptail lizard, and I was really excited. Um, they, their behavior um, definitely fits into some ideas of, of sort of biological um, sexual differences, but their phenotype doesn't. And so what ends up happening is you have kind of like uh, the menstrual cycle, you have these sort of cyclic pulses of estrogen and testosterone. And when an individual female has high progesterone, she will mount other females, um, and this simulated mating behavior will actually stimulate hormone production in the receptive female. Her estrogen will um, start spiking, and, and that's how she uh, we induce ovulation. So it's the um, sexual behavior between this all-female species that causes uh, the development um, of eggs and the ability for those eggs to, to reproduce. So, yeah, it's super fascinating. 
Um, in some cases, you some species have 23,000 sexes or more. So in fungi, um, they have this, it's a little bit complicated, but long story short, they have a particular area in their genome that can vary, and this is called their mating type. And you can um, produce offspring uh, sexually with any other individual as long as they're a different mating type than you. And depending on the species, this is the uh, split cat fungus, uh, they have 23,000 different mating types, but in fungi generally you have on the order of thousands and thousands of these different mating types that can all reproduce with uh, individuals that are different from them as long as they're not the same. So sex determination and the genetics of sex determination are massively, massively sort of uh, complex across the tree of life. We have everything from us mammals that have XXXY to um, birds that are uh, ZZZW, as I mentioned. Uh, in lizards, uh, so rept reptiles, we end up having uh, everything from environmental sex determination, so that's that temperature uh, determines um, sex determination I talked about. Some of them are ZZZW, some are XXXY. It's, it's a mess. Um, and in many, many cases, it's a single gene that determines um, biological sex. So if there's any sort of take-home message I want you to get from all of this, is that there's no sort of one way to make um, male or female. And this has repeatedly evolved again and again in sort of this massively complex set of ways. So if this is true, I mean, we do end up with um, different individuals that have different reproduction, reproductive functions. How do we get from genes to sort of anatomy? How does how do we get from, um, like, what, what is it that genes do? Because it's not that you magically just have a wide chromosome and everything sort of goes the way we think it will. It actually gets a lot more complicated. And what do I mean by it depends what sort of level you're interested in looking at. And so to understand this, we need to talk about gene expression. Now, if we think about gene expression, what do I, what do I mean about that? You've probably heard gene expression described in epigenetics. So gene expression is the way that each one of your cells in your body, um, even though it's got the exact same genome, right? You have the same sort of sequence of DNA in every cell, but different cells do different things. You've got a liver cell, right, that does some, you know, produces some enzymes. You've got skin cells that produce, you know, the oily layer on your skin. How do they become different, given they have exactly the same sequence of, of DNA? Well, what happens is some genes are expressed and some genes aren't, and, and to different degrees as well. And so we call this process gene expression, and it happens in sort of two steps. So here we have a DNA, right? And we have that sequence of base pairs, and there's four different um, bases you can have, right? The A, T, G, and C. When a gene is uh, expressed, it goes through something called transcription. And so that DNA gets transcribed into another molecule called RNA. This RNA um, is that this brings a message over to the rest of the cell that we want to express this particular gene. And so if you've ever seen studies of gene expression, what they're doing is actually measuring how many molecules of RNA there are for every given gene. So uh, when I do gene expression studies, I might say, oh, hey, gene over, this gene over here has 1,000 copies, and if I cold expose my animal, it's got 10,000 copies. And that tells me gene expression for that gene has gone up. This transcript then gets translated into uh, amino acid code. 
So for every three um, bases, we have one amino acid that gets um, kind of called in. These amino acids come together and form what's called a polypeptide or a protein. This is how your genes sort of have function. This is what they do. Just sitting around and being DNA doesn't do anything. We have to express those genes. And what's kind of interesting about these polypeptides is um, each one of the amino acids within them has slightly different chemistry. Some like water more than others, some are bigger than others, and depending on the individual chemistry of each one of those amino acids in that chain, the whole molecule is going to self-assemble in different ways. So, uh, for instance, you can imagine a molecule where all the amino acids really hate each other and they spread out as much as possible. So you can imagine that almost like a long string that's sort of all wibbly wobbly all over the place. You can also imagine a molecule where each one of those amino acids really likes each other. They want to hang out close to each other. Well, that molecule is going to be kind of small and tight and folded in on itself, right? So these uh, chemical changes is what determines the final structure of a protein, and it's the structure of a protein that actually determines its function. So you can imagine by changing a particular base pair in that DNA, you might end up calling a different amino acid in the end, and if that amino acid has really different chemistry, it's going to change that final structure of that protein just a little bit. Does that kind of make sense? Sort of. All right. So um, to make it even more complicated, we can, well, actually, let's just kind of think here a little bit with this DNA. How do we start transcribing that DNA? How does this whole sort of process get triggered? There's lots of different ways. You've probably heard of um, things like methylation of, of DNA, right, that epigenetic mark. One of the really common ways that is happening all the time, and literally all of you right now, is through something called a transcription factor. And all the transcription factor does is it binds to a particular region of DNA. This is in the promoter. And that helps a molecule, another protein called RNA polymerase, to start kind of start that transcription process. And if this is the reader that reads off that DNA into RNA, the transcription factor is what kind of says, hey, this is a good spot to hang out. You should start transcribing this gene. So transcription factors themselves are proteins. So you can have a transcription factor, right, binding to DNA that causes a transcription and then translation of new, um, new DNA itself. So you get this kind of feedback. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, it's because sex hormones, so testosterone, estrogen, these bind to transcription factors. So when you have an increase in testosterone, you have an increase in active transcription factor, and therefore an increase in expression of particular genes. So um, let's imagine this is a cell in your body, and uh, here we've got a capillary. Sex hormones um, go through the bloodstream, and uh, they exit the capillary at particular spots. They go through the edge of the cell into the cytoplasm, and they bind to um, receptors within the cell. And depending on the hormone, um, they have different receptors. So in humans, we would often talk about androgen receptors that receive uh, testosterone. Once that hormone binds to the receptor, it enters the nucleus of the cell and it acts as a transcription factor. So it binds to the DNA and it says, hey, RNA polymerase, it's time to transcribe these genes. So you can, if you think about it, and this kind of blew my mind when I first sort of realized, puberty is a, uh, you have a big increase in a particular sex hormones, right? And that actually causes a long-term, relatively stable change to your gene expression. 
So you have the exact same genome from a, as a child as you do as a teenager, but obviously your anatomy and your physiology is really different. And that's because of the changes in gene expression that have been triggered by these sex hormones that sort of make sense. Now, he, proteins are also the key to sex uh, steroid hormone production. So this is all the sex, um, uh, actually it's all the steroid hormones that are really common in the human body. I'm going to highlight a few of these. So estradiol, that's uh, one of the estrogens, testosterone, there's progesterone. They all interconvert between one another um, by the action of these uh, enzymes, which you really can't see, but all you need to see is like the little red arrow. That means that's an enzyme, right? So all of us in this room produce estrogen. All of us produce testosterone. What varies between us and among us is how much expression of the particular enzymes um, happen between those sex hormones. So if you have a lot of CYP19 uh, here, you're going to produce a lot of estradiol. If you have less expression of that, that gene, you're going to have more testosterone. And we can see that these hormones really interconvert quite easily between them. So here's something that's really like kind of, again, we're going to add another layer to this big feedback loop. Gene expression changes the expression of these proteins, which then change how much of these hormones you have. And then these hormones bind to transcription factors that then change gene expression. So it gets, it gets really, really wild. Um, and really, what I'm trying to show you is that genes don't work in this sort of on and off sort of fashion. They work by turning up and turning down gene expression, which then turns up and turns down hormone um, concentration, which then itself turns up and down gene expression. So genes are not destiny. Um, we really have to understand hormonal changes and how those are triggered. We have to understand the binding of hormones to particular receptors, right, and how well that particular transcription factor works. So now that I've told you a little bit about gene expression, how do we get from sort of proteins and hormones and transcription factors to sort of the anatomical changes that we associate with biological sex? So in humans, um, it's not that the Y chromosome is magic and does all these things. There's really only a couple of genes on it that are um, really important. And probably one of the most important ones is SRY. Um, I always think of it as SORI. Um, it's a sex-determining <laughs> uh, gene. Um, it's found on the Y chromosome. And uh, this is a transcription factor. So it produces one of those transcription factors I talked to you about um, that affects the production of other transcription factors. So it gets complicated pretty quick. None of us uh, start off female. I think that's a really common misconception that we are biologically female and then we get some testosterone while we're in utero and then we become male. Um, we all start off uh, what is called bipotential. So that means we have the capability to develop and sort of uh, to de develop things like a vagina or things like a, a testes. And what happens? is depending on the presence or absence of that gene, and then whether or not that gene's effects make its way through physiology, we see differential um, development of that bipotential gonad. So um, if we have a signal present, and that signal is received, and that sort of process um, goes through, we'll end up producing testes and lots of other sort of anatomy that we sort of associate with male. If it's absent, we end up developing an ovary and lots of other things. So what does this look like? So uh, this is what's called the sexually indifferent stage in human development. So it's around uh, before six weeks of, of uh, prenatal development. And we have three important pieces to our anatomy. 
One is something called the primitive gonad, and this can um, develop in, into either testes or ovaries, so we all have this potential. And then we have two sets of ducts. We have something called the Wolfian duct and something called the Mullerian duct. And that Wolfian duct um, forms the epididymis, the vas deferens, right, the seminal vesicles. The Mullerian duct, on the other hand, can uh, differentiate into uterine tubes, uterus, um, upper one-third of the vagina, so sort of the things that we associate as being more female. And so what happens under sort of male versus female development is depending on the signal, um, if we get a testosterone signal, what we'll see is that Mullerian duct will degenerate, the Wolfian duct will develop and differentiate into anatomy, and the primitive gonad will develop into testes. Whereas on the other hand, if we don't have that testosterone signal, we'll see the opposite. So that Wolfian duct will end up degenerating, right? And the Mullerian duct will differentiate. So if we take a look at sort of what happens through development, over here we've got X and Y, over here X and X. So if you have a Y chromosome, we have the presence of that SRY gene, and that um, helps the development of testes in particular. The testes produce testosterone, um, and that testosterone causes a differentiation of that Wolfian duct into um, testes and, and vas deferens and all these sort of reproductive structures. It also produces a second hormone um, called anti-malarian hormone, or MIS, depending on which nomenclature you're looking at, and this actually causes those malarian ducts to regress. On the other hand, right, in the absence of those two, what we end up is the, product, uh, the regression of those Wolfian ducts and the differentiation of those malarian ducts. But remember what I just talked to you about, right? We have to, to have hormones do their thing, we have to have the production of that hormone, which is controlled by gene expression, we have to have the reception, we have to have some kind of receiver for that hormone, that, that sort of uh, you know, intracellular receptor I showed you. And those things have to bind tightly together. So there's lots of cases where that doesn't actually happen. So um, intersex development in humans is, again, surprisingly common, and probably a lot more common than, than we know as we're learning more and more about biology. So that hormone signal maybe isn't produced, so that individual is lacking the enzyme um, that produces a particular hormone, or um, that enzyme doesn't function um, you know, to its full capacity, or that hormone signal is not seen. So there's lots of individuals um, who have something called androgen insensitivity syndrome. So they have a small change in their DNA, which means that their um, androgen receptor has a different shape. And so these uh, women here, they all have a Y chromosome, they have androgen insensitivity syndrome. So their bodies produce lots and lots of testosterone, but they have no way of, of getting that signal, right? And so their bodies develop anatomically female. And in a lot of cases, they have no idea that this is the case until often, um, if they have issues with fertility, that would be when, um, when they often find out. Um, again, this is relatively common about the rate of red hair. Again, there's probably people that you know that either don't know themselves or haven't told you um, that this is a situation for them. And in addition, I also wanted to mention um, polycystic ovary syndrome. Some people consider this an intersex um, condition, some people don't. Um, but what ends up happening is these are uh, women with two X chromosomes who um, end up producing lots and lots of testosterone. They have upregulation of those enzymes, right, that produce testosterone. 
And so um, this causes a significant increases in the amount of testosterone they have. And that testosterone then actually is what induces the cysts on ovaries. And this is, depending on what study you look at, between 2 and 20% of all reproductive age women. So it's a really, really common um, uh, condition. I also want to mention a few other cases um, in Animal Kingdom. So I don't know if you've heard of free martins. These are masculinized um, cows. And so um, they'll often have a mix of genotypes. So some, most of their cells will be XX, some will be XY. And this um, happens in um, many cattle species as well as sometimes in goats and sheep and pigs. And it's what happens when you have um, twin pregnancies where the offspring um, actually have uh, different karyotypes. So one will be XX, one will be XY. Um, and there's an exchange of hormones and DNA through the placenta. And so this ends up making that signal, right, during development present in this cow. So they'll often get um, anti-malarian hormone, right? So their um, malarian ducts that I talked about will regress a little bit. In the case of moles, intersex conditions are literally just how they are. They're always, always, always this way. So all female moles that you see will be intersex. They produce um, ovaries up here, and then the rest of their gonad actually is testis. So they, while they don't produce sperm, they produce lots and lots of circulating testosterone, um, as well as uh, the estrogen, estradiol and the other sort of estrogens, as well as eggs up here in the ovaries. And that just every mole that's been examined, this is the way it just is. Um, and, and so it suggests that there's really, you know, and you can kind of imagine how this happens, right? If they don't have the degeneration of that Wolfian duct um, to the same degree, you can kind of see, you know, you don't have to proceed all the way down that pathway. And depending on how the hormone signals work, you may proceed partially down that pathway or not. Um, there's a really great podcast that uh, Fred Bremer introduced me to, um, put up at Radio Lab. They sort of describe it as, you know, you can imagine, like, what would you be like if you hadn't gotten all those hormone signals, right? Or there, that you had the potential at one point in your development to proceed male or female, and, and maybe you proceeded more or, or, or less down that pathway. So finally, we're going to kind of end up with brain and behavioral sex. Um, and this you know, I'm going to tell you what I know about this from a physiological standpoint, but a psychologist probably would be better poised to answer a lot of these questions. And so I'm really kind of pushing up against the edge of my knowledge and also the edge of sort of where the science is at at this point. Uh, there's lots and lots of hormones uh, that can affect brain development. Um, this is, you know, our brains work through um, hormone signals as well. Um, and hormone receptors are found throughout the brain in different tissues to different densities. So um, given that our, our minds are just sort of a product of our, our brain anatomy, it's not surprising that we could have these effects. But broadly speaking, we have far, far, far more similarities um, within, you know, across gender than we do differences. We are, you know, for any given sort of psychological trait or personality trait, there's a huge amount of variation within any gender than there is across genders. And so this is kind of a useful way to think about this. If we saw an average difference between male and female of this particular trait, right, you can see, yes, there's a, a mean difference that you can kind of measure. But for any individual within that, those um, overlapping traits, right, Alice and Mary there, are far more different from each other than Bob or John, and they don't, you can't really categorize them into male or female based on measuring that particular trait. It's just not, there's too much variation. And so I'll show you probably one of the most 
sort of from a physiological standpoint, one of the most dimorphic traits, and that's the amount of testosterone that we have. And so this is uh, real data, this is concentration of testosterone, up here in blue uh, in females, and here in, in red in males. And while we see a difference, sure, on average, um, you can see there's lots of individuals who are down here, right, um, on the male side, and lots of females that are here on the female side. Um, and even the concentration of testosterone itself is not the be-all and end-all. How many receptors for that uh, hormone do they have? How sensitive are those receptors uh, to that hormone, right? And this is why measuring testosterone concentration in athletes is just not very effective, because you don't know what the effect of that hormone is in that individual, because you don't know how many receptors they have or, or how sensitive they are. Um, and I want to just tell you about one interesting study. Uh, this came out in 2015 in Nature Neuroscience um, that sort of gets a little bit at this question of, of brain and sort of behavioral sex. And so this study was a mouse study, so and it's just one study, so you could, you know, everything I've told you before, sort of lots and lots of studies and lots and lots of animals, we're kind of getting to the point where we have one study here and there, and no one study is kind of the be-all or end-all. So in mice, um, and in humans for a long time, it was thought to um, feminize, that the brain would just sort of develop female as long as there wasn't that, that testosterone signal. Um, and what the study has found is it actually requires active repression of um, masculinization. So it's not just that your brain, if it's not exposed to testosterone, will definitely be um, definitely be female. You need to also like tamp down, or as they said in the podcast, you have to shush the masculinization as well um, to actually have that happen. So in mice. Um, what they, uh, the way that this happens is through methylation of their DNA, and methylation can halt gene expression. So it's just a little chemical tag that goes on the DNA and prevents uh, RNA polymerase, that little enzyme I showed you, from binding. So here we have um, male mice and female mice, and they looked at what percentage of their DNA was, um, was methylated. And you can see females have a lot more of that DNA methylated than males. That means that they're shushing gene expression a lot more than the males are. Now, what the researchers did is they gave the females estradiol. So in um, mice, that's associated with brain masculinization. It works a bit differently in us. So you can see if they give the females that estradiol, they have much less methylation in the brain, right? And so that shushing signal has gone away. They stopped shushing. And so we would expect then masculinization. Well, when they do that, they actually looked in particular at an area of the brain um, called the preoptic um, center. And this part of the brain is part of the hypothalamus, it's part of the sort of hormone signaling pathways that go through your body. And when they did that, so usually um, males have a much higher density of cells in that preoptic area than females. But when they stopped that sort of shushing signal, they did it actually using um, uh, molecular biology techniques, they found that the female brain looked a lot more like the male brain. And in particular, what was interesting was the behavior of those individual females started being a lot more like behavior of males. So um, here we have males, right? Here's a, a typical female, and here's a female that's had that, that sort of, sh um, the shushing stopped, or she's, uh, they've been able to um, change those genes so that we don't actually get that methylation happening. And the y-axis here is number of mounts. So um, mounting behavior in, in male mice is both um, sort of a sexual sort of thing as well as an aggressive thing against other mice. 
So it's sort of a marker of masculine behavior. And the same uh, with number of thrusts. So just by changing um, the gene expression in the brain, they not only change neural anatomy, they also change behavior. And so the author of this said, you know, it's not just that sex and gender are sort of set. Um, and there's actually quite a continuum here. And this idea is really not controversial uh, within biology. We really see that genes are one thing. What sort of happens physiologically after that really, really varies. In humans, we have uh, the same region of the brain in the preoptic area. In particular, um, we have something called the bed nucleus, the stria terminalis. Um, so again, it's part of the hypothalamus. Our brains, generally between the genders, are very, very, very similar. But this particular small region of the brain is the most sort of reliably sexually dimorphic. So it's the most likely to be different between men and women. And so it's really been sort of the, the scientific focus of um, studies of differences between, um, between the genders. And just like in the mice, um, most men tend to have um, really quite a lot of density of cells in that brain where women have much um, lower density of cells. And what's really super fascinating is that if you look at transgender individuals, the density of um, cells in that particular um, sexually dimorphic area of the brain is much more like that of their gender identity than it is of um, the sex that they were assigned at birth. So um, what this suggests is that there is some um, good biological evidence that this area of the brain that tends to be different um, between the genders um, actually uh, sort of corresponds with perceived gender identity rather than, um, rather than not. And I think there was another study that just came out about a month or so ago that used functional MRI and showed the same sort of pattern. This is an anatomical study. Uh, so how, you know, if we think about this from some of the developmental biology, we talked about how could sort of biological sex and gender identity, that sort of part of the brain, be sort of decoupled. Um, it certainly seems that transgender identity is, um, is genetically determined. So if you look um, in identical twins, if one twin is transgender, the, uh, the chances that, it, that their twin is also transgender is about 30%. That's really, really high. If you look at um, dizygotic twins, or so non-identical twins, if one is transgender, the other has maybe a 2% chance of being transgender. So what this suggests, so um, both sets of twins have the same environment. The difference is, is how, what, how close their genetics are to each other. The identical twins have um, basically the same DNA, and the dizygotic twins don't. And so one way that we could kind of decouple these things is if we look a little bit at how sex hormones change through the lifespan. So um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but testosterone varies quite significantly throughout your lifespan. There, you have a big pulse prenatally, if you have a Y, generally, if you have a Y chromosome. We think that's associated with the development of anatomical sex. Uh, this uh, pulse of testosterone, you're pro some of you are probably very familiar with. This is uh, what cues puberty in, in uh, individuals with the Y chromosome. The mysterious pulse of testosterone, the one we don't really have great understanding about why it is, happens actually postnatally. Uh, we don't know um, why that is, but it's a very measurable change. The best evidence we have right now is it's associated with masculinization of the brain. So um, in individuals that have had this, so individuals with two X chromosomes who get this pulse um, because of uh, brain tumors or other things tend to act in much more mas sort of stereotypically masculine ways. Um, so what we could imagine perhaps is someone 
who um, has a Y chromosome, has that prenatal pulse of testosterone, and then doesn't, either this doesn't happen or, um, or their bodies aren't sensitive, that receptor to that testosterone doesn't work in the brain in the way that we would expect it to. So we could actually have decoupling, right, of anatomical sex from sort of gender identity, if that makes sense. So one of the studies uh, that's been done on this is actually look at that androgen receptor and what the DNA for that androgen receptor actually says. Um, and so um, what they found is that transgender women actually have a significantly longer androgen receptor than cisgender men. So the DNA sequence itself is longer. That ends up, if you model the protein itself, it ends up making a much longer protein. Remember how I kind of told you? Imagine a protein that's kind of long and wibbly wobbly and you know all the amino acids repel each other. Well, that's not going to bind onto something really well, right? If you want a receptor that works, you got to be able to like, kind of like the claw, right, in like those little games, right? you got to be able to grab onto it. If your protein's longer, it's not going to necessarily grab onto some uh, hormone as well, and then it's not going to work as a transcription factor. And so what this study found um, back in 2006 is transgender women tend to have androgen receptors that are genetically different. And what I've kind of told you is, is a really big simplification. You could take an entire course in the genetics and the anatomy and, and developmental biology of sex determination. Um, and this is a really nice figure um, that was published by uh, Scientific American. And it goes through um, all the ways, sort of levels that I've just walked you through from the chromosomes to the genes on those chromosomes to the hormones that are produced and how well those are received. Um, and here we have sort of the typical, I know you can't see any of this, but this is the sort of typical biological male, the typical biological female. You can see all the alternate pathways that happen in between them. And like I said, this is probably an underestimate. We don't know um, sort of the, the sort of range of variation that exists. We're really only beginning to appreciate it now as we have things like the human genome. We have more ability to sort of measure um, these differences among individuals. So my next take home message is that there's lots of biological levels of organization. And when we talk about biological sex, you can see that we have these signals that run all the way from genes, right, through to anatomy and physiology. There's a lot we don't know, and given that we all start off by potential, um, we, really, we really need to think of this as a set of dimmer switches rather than a light switch on or off. Um, having a Y chromosome doesn't guarantee masculinization. Depends on how well you're able to produce those hormones or how um, your receptors work and how those bind together um, that really determine the effects of physiology. So what does this all mean? Uh, biology does not say that there are just two sexes, and it certainly doesn't say there's two genders, because that's just not our field or our expertise. We don't, we don't really deal with gender. Uh, the truth is there's a broad spectrum out there, and this makes sense based on what we know about physiology um, and across the animal kingdom, and even in humans, there's a lot we don't know or about how all of this works. And I also want to tell you that this like variation in sex and gender is not a new thing that has just like come up in the last decade. This is really just scientists catching up to sort of the messy, complex biological reality that occurs out there. I mean, from a humanist perspective, I think our basic principles always apply. You know, treating people with respect and dignity is really not dependent on sort of what we know biologically about them. I don't treat someone differently because they happen to develop any kind of um, difference in their physiology. 
Um, and so take-home message number four is from Samantha Allen, who wrote this sort of interesting article about the relationship between science and the transgender community. And she wrote that biology and psychology are messy and intertwined. Whatever scientific test you can come up with, whether it's chromosomal analysis, brain scan, you name it, some LGBT people probably won't make it. Um, it doesn't matter, really, at the end, uh, what causes people to be transgender. What matters um, is that they rely on, on being supported. And so and we can really support people regardless of this. So um, I want to thank lots of people who helped me put this talk together, including uh, Rosemary Knapp, who's a, she's a fish physiologist and works on their endocrinology, so she had all the fish examples. Um, and I also, if anyone's interested, I have a list of sort of really, um, I think, kind of nice levels of, um, of explanation, in particular, on the scientific American special issue on sex and gender that I recommend. So, thanks. Thank you, Katie.